I think storytelling has just been a huge part of my life from a very young age. And I think a lot of what I struggled with in like coming into myself and figuring out who I was is because I'm not reflected in any of that content. Hi there. Welcome to This Is My Family, a podcast about building a life with the people you love. I'm your host, Tyler Green, and I am so glad that you're here. On today's show, we've got Linz Amer. They are the founder of Queer Kids Stuff, which is a web series focused on spreading joy and educating people of all ages, but especially young kids, about LGBTQ plus and social justice topics. But first, for those who are new to our show, welcome. I created this podcast as an exploration and celebration of the beautifully messy ways we make our families and, honestly, the ways that those families end up making us. If you listen to episode one, you'll get a sense of my story, of my husband and our son Sam and, and how we brought him into the world. We also, in subsequent episodes, talk to a drag queen, a public radio podcast host, a meditation teacher, and just last week, a Tony Award-winning educator. I really hope that you leave these episodes learning something new, and ultimately, during these really disconnected times, feeling more connected to the people around you. So again, welcome to the new folks, and thanks for sticking around to our existing fans. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to Queer Kid Stuff. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Teddy. And we're back with more brand new episodes for season three. Today, we're going to talk about gender and gender expression. Queer Kid Stuff. You are enough here at Queer Kid Stuff. That's a little taste of today's guest's work on the web series Queer Kid Stuff. It earned Linz a spot on the TED stage for a talk that has been watched more than two million times. Opening a performance with lyrics like It's Okay to Be Gay for a Room Full of Adults is one thing, but it's entirely different for a room full of kindergartners. What you just heard is the theme song for my web series, Queer Kid Stuff, where I make LGBTQ plus and social justice videos for all ages. And when I say all ages, I mean literal babies to your great great grandma. My friendship with Linz really started three or four months ago at a period of the pandemic I'm calling my LinkedIn networking phase, where I was looking for people who were doing something similar to me, whether it's podcasting or theater or queer stuff, and seeing if they'd meet for 15 minutes or whatever and, and find out about what they're doing or if there's a way that we could work together. So Linz and I ended up Zooming, and I instantly knew that I met a kindred spirit somebody who really focused their life's work on kindness and education and who was really committed to social justice. So we hung up the Zoom and didn't talk for a month or two months. And I started making this show in a serious way. And one weekend, my son was sitting on the couch watching TV. Now, short sidebar. For those of you who say that you don't let your children watch TV, you're liars. I'm just kidding. Um, if, you, if, you, if you don't let your children watch TV, bless you. Because for me, I don't know how we would do it without some form of temporary distraction while I could do the dishes or do something else other than pick up my son or put my son down or change his diaper or play a game or whatever. 
long story long, he only watches one of two shows, Coco Lemon and Little Baby Bum. Everything else we watch, he immediately comes to us, wants to play. Those two shows, he watches. And while both of those shows are somewhat racially diverse, most of the families are mom, dad, kid, dog. And I found myself being really frustrated by that. And I immediately thought of Lynn's. They say my frustration isn't uncommon among parents looking for more LGBTQ plus friendly content for their kids. In fact, they started making queer kid stuff videos with a simple goal in mind. Make videos that would have helped them, inspired them, and made life a little brighter as a confused queer kid. I'm uh, a 90s kid, and I grew up in the middle of the Disney Renaissance, right? And, like, the beginnings of Pixar. And I just, I loved stories. I grew up in downtown Manhattan, and I, my parents took me to, I was very privileged and was taken to a lot of theater as a kid. My Mm. parents are both, like, huge theater nerds. Yeah, I think storytelling has just been a huge part of my life from a very young age and I think a lot of what I struggled with in like coming into myself and figuring out who I was is because I'm not reflected in any of that content and I still really am not and I mean as an adult and there's a lot more queer representation in media nowadays but I mean it's not in those kind of like universal stories that I grew up on and love and have I have a real nostalgic yearning for to see myself in those stories and it and it never really happened and when I kind of came up um, when I started kind of pursuing that in my own work and wanting to do that for myself like for like the younger version of me I found that it just it didn't exist and it was a gap I had to fill and that's kind of been I don't know I think it's it's always silly to say like it's it feels like a calling or a purpose but it really does that's what I want to do I want to make stories about people who look like me who who feel like me and for people who share you know my sensibility about how gender and sexuality and like identity work Mm -hmm. and I want to help kids grow up understanding that and feeling reflected and validated by the stories around them so working on it (laughs) yeah yeah and I think from a queer parent perspective there is a sadness because it's sort of like Mm -hmm. he just he's mommy daddy mommy daddy (laughs) like yeah Okay, but like, and then the daddy, daddy one, it's like, it's good, but it's not, doesn't have the production values of Coco Lemon. So it's like, mm-hmm. not that we need production values necessarily, but I think, I don't know, it's just, there's, there's, um, sadness was what I felt a little bit yeah. as you were talking about even yeah. your own relationship. I come from like a pretty unconventional family structure. And even though everyone, all of my parents are straight, it was still unconventional. And, I was only ever seeing like nuclear families and that was that was hard in a very different way like the next level of figuring out like who I was as a queer person within this kind of like non-normative structure just made it really complicated to figure things out because it was all just like really muddy and complicated yeah so let's talk about the YouTube show specifically which I think is perhaps now inextricably linked to this TED talk that 
has had millions of views <laughs> yeah. is awesome and made me cry every five or six times I've watched it now. Um, <laughs> it's very beautiful. And so Thanks. I think it's just important for the listeners to set the set the scene with what is the show? So Queer Kid Stuff, it's my YouTube web series that I started in 2016. I do LGBTQ plus edutainment, I would say, where it's very kind of simple, me and my co-host, which is my puppeted stuffed teddy bear, which is actually my teddy bear from my childhood. <laughs> and we kind of tackle in short form videos questions like, what does gay mean? What is gender? Um, really going into kind of different facets of identity, social justice, what it means to be an activist, what it means to be an ally. Um, we talk about consent. And we do all of this through a really kind of accessible and approachable format for young kids. So really looking at pretty much a preschool age. When I was writing the episodes, I would write for ages about three to seven. And I wanted to do that for a lot of different reasons, mm -hmm. but um, it really came out of my background in theater for young audiences. I studied at Northwestern University and they have a really strong children's theater program. And I just really fell in love with it. Talking about kind of like growing up in Disney Renaissance and Pixar and also loving theater as a kid, that felt like a space where those two interests kind of met. And I was also, while I was an undergrad, I was coming into my queerness. I had my first girlfriend, was starting to understand my sexuality and own that a little bit more outside of kind of being an angsty teenager. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I kind of wondered why I couldn't put these two things together, why my queerness had to be so separate from the artistry that I loved and was really studying in depth. But I started kind of putting these two things together and trying to figure out like, okay, like what does a path look like for me to be able to make queer storytelling, queer media, queer theater for kids? I just kind of did a Google search one day for like, I stepped into a kid's shoes and was like, okay, like a kid hears the word gay for the first time. What do they do in mm. the age of the internet? They maybe will Google that word. And the only things that came up were a couple of resources for parents and educators and a very like bland dictionary.com definition that also included the derogatory kind of like slur definition of the word. Mm. And there was nothing aimed at kids. There was nothing for young people in that Google search. Um, even, I mean, mostly just looking at the first page. I mean, I'm sure if you dig further, it would have had other stuff, but some SoundCloud there, links. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but there wasn't really anything that was specifically aimed at this age group. I started watching a lot of LGBT YouTubers and uh, I realized that kids were on YouTube. Kids were finding YouTube videos on their own without parent supervision, which is has its pros and cons, obviously. And kids were there. There was a whole space for kids' content on YouTube. And I thought, okay, maybe this is the place where I do this. Um, and I fill this gap that I found in the Google search. And I use my expertise as a theater maker, as a creator, and use my experience and my identity to bring kind of a Mr. Rogers vibe to these topics. And I did that. And, you did <laughs> and that. we, yeah, I did that. And um, now what's kind of cool is that the videos actually turn up in the Google search for if you search, like, what does gay mean? Mission accomplished. Yeah, right. I think so. And we produced four full seasons of those videos. Mm. So I think what's really cool now is we're, we're looking at refocusing, moving into 
kind of this new year and taking a lot of the content that we've done already and really curating it for families to build out a little bit more of an accessible curriculum that's mm-hmm. aimed at preschool ages and has a queer-centered focus um, while we're also talking about intersectionality and social justice as a whole. So really trying to shepherd, instead of like having to build all of this stuff up, now we're kind of moving into a space where we can shepherd and support people who want to go on that journey. Hmm. So yeah, I'm really excited about the kind of new space that we're going to start taking up. I mean, you've done this, but how would you approach explaining what non-binary is to somebody specifically through this show? My approach to kind of these seemingly complex ideas that we're talking about is I really like to base it on this this phrase that I learned from a mentor of mine actually I think we're mutual we have a, I think he's a mutual friend Philip Dawkins who's oh, um, yes. uh, an incredible queer playwright mostly out of Chicago um, and he was a teacher of mine at Northwestern and he said to write for children from under the doorknob so it's really about getting low to the ground and looking up at the world through a child's perspective. So what does that mean? That means kids are entering a space without context, without the adult baggage of personal experience of how gender functions in the world, how sexuality functions the world, around how we relate to each other, the conflicts and the camaraderie around that. Mm -hmm. So how do we approach an idea that feels complex to us as grown-ups, in a way that feels approachable to kids is we shed that baggage and we look at, okay, what is actually, what is really like the core idea we're talking about? And so when you're talking about, so let's take the word non-binary, what is non-binary? The first building block we need to get there is gender, an understanding of what gender is at its core. And the way I talk about gender is about, it's about how we feel internally about ourselves and how we express ourselves to the world. So it's gender is not something that is concrete. It's something that's, if you really kind of like turn into yourself and think about, okay, what, how do I feel about gender? Not what you're told about what your gender is by a doctor, by your parents, by society. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you feel internally about your gender. And then we also turn out externally and we express that to the world and that can be through our clothes our hair our mannerisms even and in particular our pronouns so what i talk about with kids is you know pronoun is a word we use when we're not using someone's name and we want to indicate their gender so usually you'll see pronouns like he and him you'll see pronouns like he and her but there are also pronouns they and them some people use they and them pronouns And people who are they and them, who use they and them pronouns, feel usually an in-betweenness or an outsideness of these two genders that we're given when when we're starting to understand gender. So those two genders are boy and girl, typically. But someone who uses they and them pronouns maybe feels in between those two genders, maybe feels outside of those two genders. And that's someone who is non-binary. There you go. There it is. <laughs> but, but really, it's about it's about coming at it without context. But it's yeah. also like about building these blocks, these foundations, because yeah. especially you don't have to do this as much with kids. But in particular with grownups, when you're talking about this stuff, it's because we do come at it with baggage and we do come at it with context. Mm-hmm. You have to unlearn 
how we understand how gender functions in society, which gender is so intrinsic to how we function in all aspects of, of yeah. society. And that's why it can be really hard when you when you see a word like non-binary and you're so used to looking at the world as boy and girl, you can see that word and be like, I don't understand it. I think, yeah. And I think that that is a pretty typical reaction from an adult, especially older adults, because you have, you know, the more experience you have, the more concrete those definitions are for you, and the more concrete your understanding of how the world functions is when we're in the context of gender. So we have to unlearn a lot of that and reformulate our conception of how gender functions. So looking at you know, not just the binary of boy and girl, we're adding in what it means to be non-binary and trans and all these other things. And we start to look at gender as a spectrum rather than a binary. And usually I use pronouns as just kind of like the in to that because it's something that's very universally understandable. We use pronouns in pretty much every language. I'm not a ling linguistics expert, but <laughs> I think, I think, so don't no, quote me on is, this. <laughs> no, super helpful. I, it struck me this morning, we referred to my son as he, and um, mm -hmm. I have a friend who refers to their daughter as they, and, and then mm -hmm. I was hearing something about gender identity being formed around the age of four. Mm -hmm. So then I felt all kinds of feelings about, um, you know, my learning and, and what unlearning I need to do. And a lot of this is a first generation of parents who are kind of figuring this out and looking at gender in a new way. I mean, I think that we can look to history and like societies that didn't think about gender in a binary way, but this is kind of like the first generational space where we're looking at this in, you know, modern society. And I don't think there's a right way yet. <laughs> I think that we're all still kind of experimenting, but my favorites that I, cause I'm, I'm in a lot of like parenting circles and I kind of, because of the work that I do, obviously I'm pretty tapped into it for the most part while not being a parent myself yet. And the ones that I, I really enjoy are uh, sometimes I'll ask for kids' pronouns and parents will say kids that are quite young, um, usually under four, usually like infants to like three years old. They'll say that their pronouns are TBA, <laughs> which I think is funny, um, which I think is hilarious. I also see uh, parents going along with the assigned birth of a child, but with the caveat that my daughter's pronouns are she, her, until we know otherwise yeah. and she can predetermine that right. on her own after we have conversations with her and give her the space to explore and change her pronouns or um, explore her gender as she wants to as she grows and starts to self-identify still ahead i talk with lynn's about their coming out experience and how even for kids raised in the queer holy land of broadway coming out is never easy if you're enjoying this conversation, don't forget to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or add us on any of the other great podcast apps. More Lens just ahead. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this podcast.
I asked Linz what their family looked like growing up and how it affected their coming out journey as a queer and non-binary person. Their parents split up when Linz was pretty young, but kept co-parenting a few blocks apart in Manhattan. And divorce isn't uncommon, of course, but as a kid, having two apartments and soon after step-parents and step-siblings, it made Linz feel an otherness in how their family worked, a dynamic that they didn't often see reflected in media as a, quote, normal family. At first it was me, my mom, my dad, and my younger sister. She's two years younger than me. And I grew up, um, I went to preschool on 14th Street, just off Union Square Park. Very much a New York City kid. Um, My parents got divorced when I was... I think in first grade. So they split and moved into separate houses, but a couple, not too far away. My parents have always been kind of in a five to 10 block radius of each other. And I grew up bouncing between their houses with my sister. My parents, um, my dad's a lawyer and he, they like did the custody agreement on their own. And um, which is nice and lovely. Nice, yeah. <laughs> they're very, they're very amicable. They've always, they've kind of been friends throughout all of it and good co-parents, I think. So I would kind of bop between them every other week, which uh, which was tough. <laughs> it was it was a lot of movement for a kid. Mm. Then my parents got remarried, um, not to each other separately, uh, to I want to say when I was like in middle school, and I I gained two step siblings, my two stepsisters from my dad's remarriage. You started to allude to navigating your queerness in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, So now that we've sort of painted the scene, at least, of of where you were Mm -hmm. and and sort of bouncing back and forth, maybe we could talk a little bit more about that. Kind of figuring that stuff out for me within the context of my, like, kind of unconventional family was interesting, in particular because me and my three sisters all went to the same high school. Mm. So my younger sister is two years younger than me, but then my step siblings are one one of my step sisters is I think like four or five months younger than me. And my younger stepsister is so two years younger than me. So we're kind of like paired up and uh we there was like at least a year when all four of us were in the same high school at the same time. So I didn't really have a separate space from my family. I felt it was difficult to really explore who I was independently. And I ended up doing that in high school. I went to like a pre-college theater program. And I mean, outside of like summer camp, it was really the, as a kid, it was really kind of like the first place where I felt truly independent and I mean, that's where I first kissed a girl and like that little light bulb went off in my head. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, and now that person is like one of my like closest, dearest friends. Aww, yeah, yeah. Uh, we talk about like gender euphoria a lot in the queer community. And I really felt like a queer euphoria, I would say, like in the space of like a month which Mm. was really dense and very intense experience. And I went back to school, back to my life in New York after that. And I was just like super depressed because I had to Mm. go from this like space where I felt like I'd really opened up and I had to go right back 
And so my junior year of high school was like rough. I had the person who's like my, one of my dearest, like chosen family, like people now I was in like angsty unrequited love with her. And like, that was really hard. And I was like channeling a lot of energy into that. And was also just like super depressed and like trying to figure out my sexuality was very repressed in my gender. Yeah, it just like wasn't a good year for me. <laughs> yeah. um, ended up like kind of getting things together after a lot of kind of like, excuse my friend, shit went down and yeah. tried to come out the other side of it and was just kind of like biding my time before college. And once I got to college, I felt like I actually really could start to explore my sexuality I got had my first girlfriend and I and I felt like school and my environment was able to be separated from my family a little bit so I had time to really question myself and my identity at that time where mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I had the freedom to do that before but it's so interesting to hear you talk about growing up in New mm -hmm. York and all of the assumptions I would place on you, yeah. you know, about that and then hearing how difficult mm -hmm. it was. And obviously it makes perfect sense. I think a lot of people do make that assumption that like growing up in a liberal environment, like you're more adept at maybe like understanding yourself a little bit sooner. Mm -hmm. The thing is that like I had that assumption about myself as well. It, what was interesting, I think, is that like it was like, to like gay people will totally chill, like, you know, walking around the West Village as a kid, like, that's whatever, fine. I was exposed to a lot. I had like a nanny who was like a preschool teacher of mine when I was a kid. Her and her partner were gay and like we're having kids. And, but the thing was that like, gay people were okay, but that was separate from me and my identity. That didn't have any, I was like, okay, it's like cool. It's like, okay. And cool for like you and like, for like you to be gay, for you to live your life as a queer person, but that's not me. And that was something that I found with my parents too. And kind of like my coming out story with them of like them while being like liberal, like still having to grapple with the fact that like, yes, it's okay for other people to be gay, for my friends to be gay. My mom did her MFA in acting and like had lots of like a, theater people and like theater is just like rife with queer folks mm -hmm. um which is I'm sure why I gravitated towards it as a young person yeah. kind of feeling like the queerness of that community mm -hmm. inherently but I think that it was a different thing to turn to when your child is gay and I think that's something that like my like liberal parents had in common with like a lot of conservative parents too so it's it's interesting to see even if you're in an environment that you'd think would be progressive and like, quote unquote, accepting, it was still really tough. And I had a lot to do with the fact that I didn't have those conversations with my parents as a kid. It just wasn't something that we talked about. It wasn't. And I think that really what queer kid stuff is about is about prompting conversation. We always start episodes with a question and it's about, it's about open dialogue with young people. I think overarchingly, if you're, you know, looking past kind of like the queerness of it in itself, it's about opening up that conversation. And that's why I think I took a lot of uh, inspiration from Mr. Rogers, because I think that's what mm -hmm. his program was all about. And I and that's what I grew up on when I was in like preschool and a kid. Good inspiration to have. Just before we move on to chosen families and found families, I'm curious how how the coming out conversation went a little mm -hmm. more specifically with with your with your parents. So while I was like very confused and angsty and depressed in high school, I 
decided to like on a whim come out to my mom as bisexual one night because like my friend didn't like text me back soon enough. So that was like <laughs> maybe ill-advised. Uh, mm-hmm. And I hadn't really like ha- had those inner questions. I'd, I'd like kind of gone to that theater program and had these inclinations of like, Ooh, gay, what am I? Who am I? And just kind of like blurted that out to my mom. And she very much had that like, kind of like initial reaction of like, I don't really know what to say other than like, I hope I am like, I hope and wish that your life isn't hard, which I think is not the best thing to say to a confused teen, but also like she, it was also like a weird situation that I put her in, I think, where I like, didn't really know what I was saying. I hadn't really like fully grappled with it before I put it out into the world, but also like she's done like so much work since then. And I feel like maybe like once a year after that, we would revisit it until in college, I was kind of like identifying more as bisexual and was kind of figuring it out a little bit more actively. But the summer before my junior year, I got a summer research grant from Northwestern to go to London I kind of just like made this decision to like, okay, like I'm going to try just like living life as a gay person. I'm going to just like go out to gay bar. I I was also like, I I was about to turn 21. So it was legal for me to drink in the UK at the time. And I was like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to like try and like be in queer spaces. And I I did that and I had a lot of fun and uh, was just kind of like, I didn't feel like I had any attachments outside. I really felt super independent and it was the happiest I'd felt in a long time. And when I came back to the States and started school up again, I was like, I'm just going to stop lying. I'm going to, I'm just going to stop trying to be something that I'm not. And I started dressing more butch and, I I started kind of like leaning into it a little bit harder and kind of really fully owning my queerness. And I think my family, we never really like had like a full conversation about it until I started dating my first girlfriend. And I was just kind of like, I'm dating someone. It is a girl. And everyone was like, all right, cool. Because I think that they had already noticed (laughs) that I was being... I I think I was just kind of like living out. I never really had like that full coming out conversation. I, for the record, hate coming out. It's something we have to do as queer people all the time. I hate it. It's awkward. I don't like, especially then, it felt like declaring who you want to have sex with. Mm. And that is uncomfortable for me and was never something I was comfortable with. And I felt straight people don't have to do it why do I so I didn't ever and I am also like pretty (laughs) confrontation averse (laughs) as a human um so I really didn't like want to have those conversations either I would rather just kind of like live the life I want to live how I want to live it and I think my parents understood that and got that and I mean I kind of had the conversation when I started dating my first girlfriend but (laughs) and I mean, it necessitated her gender was very obvious um, and they met her and stuff. But yeah, it was uh, it was less of a coming out and more of just a like decision to stop lying. I'm struck by this notion of chosen family and, and found family. And I sort of have two questions baked into one, which is mm-hmm. when did it, that idea become conscious for you? 
And then Ooh. as a kind of a connected question, and I and hopefully don't make the answer too complicated, I'm curious how you see kids discovering this concept these days. Where I started feeling that, I think was when I started feeling like different from my family. I think, and I think that that was also like a part of this like teenage angst and like struggle that I was going through of like understanding my unconventional family structure, but also like my queerness within all of that and understanding like where like commonality ended with my family. It's in some aspects. Like my mom is a very creative person. She has an MFA in acting. She's a musician. She works. So she's part of uh, Music Together, which is a international organization that basically is like parent baby classes in um, teaching music. Mm-hmm. So I've been around music and teaching kids my entire mm-hmm. life. Um, mm-hmm. She got into it because she had me when she was young mm-hmm. and was a musician and wanted to be a parent and a musician and then found this program and started her own small business franchise of it on Upper West Side and um, now is a senior executive with the kind of like global corporate side of things. So I've kind of like got my mom with that very creative side of things. And then my dad is a very successful lawyer, very like set in his path and has been very successful in that way. And I think that they're, my dad in particular, I think had a lot of, had a very like set way of like understanding how career works and how paths forward into adulthood worked. And I don't think I think because I have such a strong creative drive, particularly from my mom, I think, and my mom's influence, I don't think he ever really understood. Maybe he does. Maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, but I've, I've always felt a little misunderstood in that way. Like my, my, my younger sister has followed kind of like a sort of similar creative path, but my two stepsisters are like a doctor and a lawyer. Mm. So much more kind of straightforward ways of pursuing career. I mean, I've been on such a windy path. So it wasn't just my like literal queerness that I was dealing with within like this like kind of funky structure, but also like a queer way of looking at how I could live my life in my in every aspect of it. And I think that that was something that my family hasn't always understood, at least on my kind of like in within my dad's immediate circle Mm -hmm. so I think I was grappling with that as well and I think all of that essentially I'm very extra queer when you're talking about me in the context of certain parts of my family and Mm -hmm. I think it was coming to terms with that and figuring that out and the path to figuring that out and understanding that just like ideologically and conceptually was something that made me feel a little othered and also forced me to seek out spaces where I didn't feel othered. Mm-hmm. And that has been a long and winding journey to just like, yeah. of just like picking up people throughout my life who I now call like my closest and dearest friends and chosen family. But I think that's been, for me, it's been about the people who've like stuck along for the ride a little bit. Let's close out with talking about your family now and, and your immediate family. Mm-hmm. So your partner and your puppy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more about about 
about them and also like what it's been like in the pandemic for you? So my partner and I have been together three and a half years about, mm. um, we're actually engaged. I, I, I tend to use the word partner. I don't, I don't know why I don't like the word fiance very much, but I don't, it just, mm. it doesn't feel very different from like the rest of the time we've been together. We're just, you know, going to have a party in June, theoretically, if the pandemic is, mm. <laughs> is, is fine by then. Um, mm. hopefully. So yeah, we met three and a half years ago in New York. We were, um, set up by a mutual friend. I don't know, just from the outset, we just like really clicked. I went on that first date with her. We um we went to Brooklyn Bridge Park and we saw one of those like out free outdoor public screenings and the movie was nine to five. <laughs> so we <laughs> so we watch uh so we watch nine to five every yes. year on our anniversary. Oh, um, yes. which is excellent. We're both really like goofy and playful and we have a lot of fun together. Um, we're both pretty like fiery and passionate. So that can, uh, she's an Aries and I'm a Scorpio. So uh, mm. we have some, uh, there's some conflict sometimes, yep. but I think that we, we just like really care about each other and we're both really ambitious and creative. She's a journalist and a writer and I am multi-hyphen and all the things. <laughs> and, and she's just always been incredibly supportive of my work and what I do. And I try to be really supportive of her and what she's doing. She, she writes really cool stuff. <laughs> um, mm. And I think we just are, are just trying to be really supportive of each other. And I mean, we've been working from home for a long time and this is kind of together and figuring that out, but it's definitely been a new dynamic to to sort through since the pandemic really hit. And we've, I mean, we see other people sort of, um, we have, uh, we have a friend who we kind of like pod up with. We see my mom sometimes she lives upstate New York with my stepdad now and they are pretty isolated. So we've, we've been driving down to see them. What type of family do you, uh, do you have aspirations to be in the future? So we're getting married in June and we are talking about buying a house together sometime next year, probably after the wedding, because that sounds crazy fancy getting married and by house at the same time we've got a dog already georgie she's a cattle dog mix rescue dog who's a little bonkers but we love her anyways <laughs> um she's been she's, chill this whole time sitting next she to has been she's been taking her mid-morning nap i guess yeah so we've had her for three years we got her very early on in our relationship which was uh, maybe ill-advised but it's worked out for the best in the end yeah, I mean, we we definitely want to like build a family together. We're trying to like get financially stable first, <laughs> which is part of all of this. But um, yeah, we definitely like want to have kids and second dog and a house, and you know, we're, we're just trying to kind of build our careers up to a stable place right now and get on that life journey and try and build kind of like our queer happily ever after, you know. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I, I have really have a deep connection to your approach. Mm. Kindness and education go very, very, very far. And that's sort of the whole point of the show. And so spread queer joy. <laughs> keep fighting the fight and spreading that queer joy. And um, mm. yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was really lovely. Sometimes I look at my son and I see him. 5, 10, 15, and even today, I was like, he'll be 21, and I'll be 50-whatever. And it occurs to me, the thing that's true across all of those age groups is that it's now my job to be there for him. And that makes me nervous. 
because it's becoming more and more clear to me that I'm already fumbling the ball when it comes to things like gender identity. But I did take a breath after listening to this conversation, and I felt a sense of calm because of Linz's work. Through their videos, it's clear to me that there's actually no age too young to talk about this stuff. And sure, when Sam is three or four or five, he's going to actually understand things about gender. And I'm so grateful that these videos exist as a kind of booster for these conversations. Because that's really what they are, conversations. My kid is watching a lot of media where his family is not represented. Even if he was watching queer kid stuff all day, it's important to just not assume that kids are going to absorb it. You have to talk. And even if my son identifies as a cisgendered straight male, I want him to be an ally. And one of the only ways that you can do that is by understanding empathy. Through conversation, you're able to figure out what it's like to maybe stand in someone else's shoes. At the end of the day, I am committed to helping my son be a friend to the queer community. Because, quite frankly, it's a community that, over the decades, has given me and my husband immense amounts of love, laughter, and joy. Your homework for this week is to watch Queer Kids Stuff. Go onto YouTube and type Queer Kids Stuff, and you'll see countless videos. I highly recommend the video about consent. There's one about drag kings and drag queens, and one in particular that I really love. It's called Why is Pride in June, and it's sort of a primer on Stonewall for kids. On next week's episode, we've got Ariane Nettles, who is a brilliant journalist and journalism professor. She's also a single mother raising a son with special needs. So his birth was normal. He didn't have any issues at birth. I didn't have any, like, pregnancy issues that I knew of. Like, everything was pretty normal. But when he was around three months old, I saw him have a seizure. And for the longest, nobody would believe me. Thanks for listening to This Is My Family. You can find Linz on Twitter, at Linz Amer, and at Queer Kids Stuff. You can find our podcast at TIMF Show. Our website is TIMFshow.com. When you're there, we'd love it if you'd click subscribe in the right-hand corner to our newsletter. We're going to start sending out weekly emails with more stories from the TIMF Show universe very soon. This podcast is a production of The Story Producer, and it's produced by me, Trisha Bobita, and Jackie Ball. It's edited and mixed by Adam Yaffe. Our music is by Andrew Edwards. Our community manager is Annika Exum. And last but certainly not least, our art director is my handsome husband, Ziwu Zhao. Would you be willing to share an episode with a friend or family member? You'd be surprised how much of an impact a personal recommendation can make. And of course, you know, do the use, rate, review, five stars, all of those things. Thanks for listening. I'm Tyler Green. And until next time, stay beautiful and messy.
Is the podcast all done, Sam? 